0: man thanks y'all um hey i think it's a good reminder right uh we just heard a couple people who were wrestling with colds singing the lord is worthy he uses broken people he uses us in our shatteredness in our mess so i just wanted to say thank you all worship team um thanks for doing that Hey, uh, my name is Kent Woodrow. I'm the associate pastor here at Holy Cross. Uh, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. Um, as you're turning there, I want you to think about a time that you had to get through something hard. And the difference that it makes when you know you got an outcome on the other side. Something, you're, something you are guaranteed. A promise, right? So I think one of the easier ways to think through this is if, like, you're sick. You ever felt uh, like the world is just, maybe this is just me. I'm going to, like, man complain right now. I get a cold. I get sick. This thing's going to go on forever. You just feel like, my life's falling apart, you know. There's no end to this in sight. Imagine how that would be if you went to the doctor's office. You get a diagnosis that scares you terrified and you don't know what the outcome's going to be, right? But imagine after two or three weeks of the darkness of that wrestling, you go to the doctor and they say, hey, we have a hundred percent guarantee. This would never happen because doctors never give you a hundred percent on anything, right? We have a hundred percent guarantee. You take this treatment. It's going to be okay. How does your life change now, Right? You have a promise. You have a promise that gets you through. That is what our passage today is about. A promise to get God's people through. A promise of a king. Just some quick context as you guys are turning to 2 Samuel 17, uh, because last week we spoke on Judges 17, uh, 2 Samuel 7. We spoke on Judges 17 last week um, and the themes from Judges 17 are going to carry over into this one, so I'm going to give you a quick recap, all right? Uh, last week, we said all human beings have this deep felt need, this yearning for blessing, for shalom, for the right ordering of things, for, for relationship with God that we can never seem to get right because ever since our rebellion against God, our hearts are bent toward wrong, right? And the shocker in Judges is that this this... Deep-seated rebellion that ruins all of our attempts to get shalom and have a relationship with God. This this heart-level rebellion was true even of Israel, of God's own people. It wasn't just true of the people out there. It was true of the people that God had set apart, the people that he had promised, through whom he had promised shalom is gonna come through them. Blessing is gonna come through them, right? And so far from being like the blessing bringers to the world, God's people were, in Judges, just as bad, if not even worse than the nations out there, right? And so Judges, like, if you read, you finish Judges, you're kind of left with this burning question, right? Are we just doomed to endlessly ache for Shalom? Are we just confined to the hell of our rebellion, right? Right? and never be restored to relationship with God and, and to the shalom that we were made for. Y'all, that could have been the story. That could have been the story. But that was not the story that our God is writing. No, our God is a promise-making God. See, he, he chose to promise relationship and, and the restoration of shalom, right? and because he's a promise-keeping God, he shows that, like, I am true to my word. I will stand by what I say, and I am going to deliver on the promises that I make to bring shalom, restoration, restoration of relationship, restoration of the world through my people, specifically through my king. And today, we get to 2 Samuel 7, and y'all, this is an important moment in the story of rescue that God is telling, a moment when God says, I'm giving you a promise, the promise of a king. So would you stand with me, if you're able and willing, as we look at this moment, almost climactic, not quite the climax, but it's pretty, it's, it's close in God's story of rescue. Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king, that is David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from, his, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've moved about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved about with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly as from the days, as from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Promise. The true word of the living God given to his people, to you, because he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we are here to hear from you. So I ask that you would speak. I pray, Lord, that you would move um, to open your word to us with fresh eyes. For some of us, we've read this passage a lot. For some of us, maybe it sounds new and foreign and strange. Um, Wherever we're at, what we need most is you. So we ask that you would move to touch our hearts, to open our eyes to the beauty of our king, that we might leave here transformed and ready to sing about the king who came. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, grab a seat. So uh, another two-point sermon today. This is kind of a Kent Woodrow special. Um, Two points. Promised house and a promised son. The promised house and the promised son. So let's get us going with a promised house, right? Because this critical moment in the story that God is telling of rescue, the story that God is writing, starts with David's desire to build a temple, a house for the Lord, for Israel's covenant-making God. All right, so a little bit of context, right? Uh, so after a, a, about a three to 400-year period of warlord judges described in the book of Judges that we were in last week, uh, Israel then languished for an additional 40 years under the monarchy of King Saul, who... Like the, so many of the folks that we heard about in Judges last week, he just had this pattern of doing what was right in his own eyes to his own harm and the harm of the nation. And so just when things seemed darkest, God flips on a light. He calls a man after his own heart named David and he sets him on Israel's throne and begins to unite the the disparate and and feuding tribes of Israel into a more centralized power uh, that drove out the invading outsiders and brought security to Israel's borders. Hey, look, that may sound foreign to you. Uh, So apologies to the folks who live in Waynesboro. But imagine this. Imagine it would be like, for some reason, the folks out in Waynesboro just hated our guts. And they wanted us all gone. And there's nothing between Waynesboro and where we're at to to prevent them from just coming in here, taking our homes, taking our kids, taking our lives, right? Sounds a little funny. But you know, we've had feuds with Waynesboro before, right? So, but imagine this gets bloody. That's, That's the kind of fear and terror that God's people lived under. Enemies just outside the door until King David came, right? Anyway, back to verse one. Um, the Lord had given Israel a measure of, of peace and rest through what, uh, the conquest of David. And so David could finally take, a, take his mind off of war for a little bit and turn to matters that were dearer to his heart. So where do David's desires turn? When he gets a, when he gets a second to stop like pushing out, invading outsiders, where do his desires turn? to honoring the Lord, right? To, to, to this honoring the God that he loved so much, and the one to whom he owed everything. And he wanted to do this by replacing the tattered 400-year-old tent that uh, the Lord uh, that represented the Lord's dwelling place among his people. And he wanted to replace that with this, with this permanent, glorious structure of a, of a temple, right? a house that would be worthy of a, of a great God. See, in David's day, temple building wasn't something just like you and me could do. It was something kings had to do because it was an expensive affair. So David was gonna make sh- Israel's God, make sure that Israel's God had a house that was fit for him, right? Uh, if, because look, if, if all the idols of the surrounding nations had their own places of worship and temples, well, David wanted to make sure that, that God the holy, majestic, the living God of Israel would have this place of like eye-watering beauty that fit him. Because it would be just like this mere dim reflection of his own glorious person. That's what he wanted. A permanent house to permanently represent the dwelling place of God with man. Hey, Holy Cross, uh, parallels are too similar to pass up, right? So I, I bet, given our own building process and everything we've gone through, right? Your desire, like you probably feel a little bit more of David's desire, right? You can resonate with this some. Um, So let's just do a quick check-in, right? Um, Looking at David's desire for the glory, the honor, the the splendor of his God and how he wanted his house to reflect that. Just a quick check-in for us um, and our desires. So when we think about this building out on Frontier Drive, what is the... What feeling comes to you most instantly, right? Is it the sense of like, I just can't wait to have a place that will limit our workload, right? A place that will, will be just a little easier for us to, to be and do what we are as a church, right? Or is it about, is it about me and my life? Or are our desires for that little space on frontier drive for the Lord's glory? that God's glory would explode out of there and into our city and into the surrounding areas, right? Uh, Here's why I mentioned this, right? Um, I know that that's the heartbeat of our church, but we got to keep checking in because our hearts are deceitful. They'll just run off and do their own thing. And typically we do mission drift when we're not checking in. So we're just going to keep checking in. Hey, is this about the Lord and his glory? As it was for David. Or is this about us and our comfort? Okay, so just a quick check-in. Keep checking in with yourself, your small groups, ministry teams, that sort of thing. All right, so back to David. That's a good desire, right? The Lord and his glory to see a place where God would be made famous, a house that would represent his honor and his presence among his people, uh, a place for glory. That's a good desire. In fact, like it seems so good, Nathan's just like, Yeah, man, go for it. The Lord's prophet in verse three. And he instantly has to like walk back that promise or that that endorsement in verse four. Because you see, the Lord had a different desire for his house, didn't he? The Lord had a different desire. So let's talk about it. What was the Lord's desire? What What did the Lord want in a house? What did the Lord want in a place of worship in the first place, Right? To answer this, I'm gonna give you just a few passages that kind of cherry pick it through the Bible because this theme runs through the whole of scripture. All right, we're gonna start with the beginning, drop in the middle a little bit and go all the way to the end. Um, And I'm gonna read out these passages and can you pick out a theme? Hey, I get it. I get that sometimes we're tempted to, oh, he's just quoting a lot of verses at me and you can tune off. I would encourage you, write each of these down, spend some time reflecting on them later. But especially for right now, see if you can pick out a theme. What does the Lord want in a place of worship? All right, so here's the lections from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, We're gonna read chapter two, verses seven and eight, and then chapter three, verse eight. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And from Exodus chapter 25, verse eight, uh, the Lord, this is in the middle of the Lord giving instructions for building the very tent that David then hoped to replace 400 years later. Here's what he says, 25, verse eight. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then smack dab from the middle of our Bibles, Psalm 134, verses 13 and 14. Uh, this passage describes Jerusalem and, and the temple that, D- that David's son Solomon would later build there. Um, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And then, last book in the Bible, Revelation. Chapter 21, verses two to three. Almost like the last few verses of scripture. It describes what will one day happen in, in the Lord's renewed world. I saw the holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You guys catch it? Did you catch that theme? Why does God plant a garden, a tent, a temple, a house in the midst of his people in the first place, right? Because from the moment our God created human beings, his unshakable, irreversible longing, the desire of his heart, his steadfast desire has been to dwell with us, with us. No matter how we've complicated that, because we've made that hard, and the Lord's desire has been to be with us. Hey, how different is that from the way you, in our culture, broadly conceives of God? We who tend to think of him as very distant and far off and uninvolved and uncaring, sort of a deistic God. He sort of sets everything in motion, steps back, right? And honestly, isn't that sometimes what we would most prefer? (laughs) We'd rather have a God who, you know, jumps in when we're in a jam. We'll answer a few prayers here and there and uh, maybe bring us some comfort when we're feeling down. But in general, we'd kind of rather have him out there. And the Lord's desire is the exact opposite. I will be in the midst of my people. The Lord desires to be with his people. Why? Because he desires his people. He loves his people. Hey, he loves his people the way a young man standing on this end of a a sanctuary looks out and sees his bride-to-be coming down the aisle. That's how God describes his love for his people. That passion for his people. For you. Friend, do you believe that? Is that your God? God? Is this the kind of God that you have a relationship with? Or do you keep him at an arm's length? Do you want him distant? Keep him far away? Because that kind of love is, is just too terrifying, too scary. The Lord desires his people. The Lord wants to dwell in the midst of his people. Hey, y'all, the Lord's house in all of its splendor is meant to house us too is that glorious? And y'all, like, when you know your heart and you know how we rebel and we go after our own things and we, we do what's right in our own eyes, it doesn't just blow you away. That that kind of God, that kind of glorious splendor would want us in his house with him. It should reduce you to worshipful tears. The Lord desires his people. So... Okay, so the Lord wants to dwell in the midst of his people, right? But why would he turn down David's David's desire to build him this permanent house, to build him this kind of temple, right? Because he would himself commission a temple, commission a house, just like a couple decades later when under the rule of Solomon, uh, and, and a permanent structure would communicate the exact same thing that this tent communicated. So why did the Lord say, David, not now? You ever wonder about that? Well, see, it's because our Lord not only seeks to dwell with his people, he also identifies with his people. He identifies with his people. Think about it. Why was the Lord's house a tent right now? Because from the beginning, from once, once the Lord had picked Abraham, starting with Abraham, God's people had been nomads, wanderers, immigrants, People who moved from place to place, right? With no place to call their home. Y'all, the Lord lived in a tent because his people lived in tents, right? And even though now, at this point in their history, most of God's people had kind of like actual houses to, to live in, um, they still weren't fully settled, right? Not when the folks from Waynesboro can come and like sack your house on a whim. They weren't settled yet. So what was the Lord doing in turning down David's desire to, to build this temple? He was saying, I identify with my people. You can almost, almost hear his smile, right, in verses 5 through 11 here, uh, this, the, the smile in his voice. David, you want to build me a house like yours? Uh, you know that over the last 400 years, I've never told the shepherds of my people that it was time to build me a permanent home. Do you know why that is, son? Verse seven, right here. Because I move with my people. I'm not settling down until I have settled y'all down. Until I give you rest, my people, I will not rest. I will plant you in safety. And then once y'all are settled, then I will settle into a permanent house. And son... I'm going to do this through your family. Give my people rest and build myself a home. That's what the Lord says to to David. So I didn't plan to say this. But just as an aside, um, where do you feel unsettled and not at rest? And do you do you feel like the Lord is with you in that? Hey, as as good reform folks, we might. Get the sense like, yes, everything is for God's glory and it should be. But do you realize the Lord was willing to put off his glorious dwelling for just a little bit longer so he could identify with his people and settle, settle them first and then settle himself. Jesus is with you in your wrestling, in those areas where you're like, I don't know if he identifies with me. He does. He does. He does. Do you have eyes to see it, right? So that brings us to the promised son, right? Because the Lord flips David's desire to build him a house. He kind of flips it back on David with this playful twist and a profound promise, a, a, a weighty promise. He says, David, you want to build me a physical house? Watch me, son, because I am going to build you a house, a dynasty. And so the Lord introduces this promise, this promise of a king the son of God, right? So let's, let's talk about uh, the promised son. See, if you were David and you heard the Lord making these promises of, of uh, he says offspring here in verse 12, uh, the word there is the Hebrew word zerah, right? And it, uh, it's, it's literally the word seed, okay? That word seed would have set bells ringing away in your ears. You wanna know why? Because the Lord's ancient promises of rescue are very much tied up with that word Zerah, seed, okay? Don't believe me? Let's work through it. Uh, the first time you hear the word seed, it's in Genesis 3. Right after human beings had rebelled against God and lost shalom, lost what we were made for, and the Lord promises to the woman that her Zerah, her, her seed, would one day crush the devil. And his, and his counter-kingdom that he had set up, right? Uh, and then the next time you see the word seed show up, it's in Genesis 9, when the Lord promises Noah he would never again flood the earth or disrupt the cycles of the earth. He says to Noah, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. Next 15 times we hear the word seed, it's in God's promise of seed, to infertile Abraham, an infertile Sarah, a seed that would one day possess the earth, would fill it like the stars fill the night sky. It would fill it with blessing. It would bring about the shalom that we were made for. Right, and then all through the rest of the story, up until God's, uh, up until David. The story of the seed of God's people is is that of the Lord being faithful to grow this tiny, fragile seed, to to protect it against uh, all the opposing, dark opposing forces that would come and uproot that seed. So now at last, the Lord promises that not just through Abraham's ever-growing family and the spreading of seeds, but specifically through David's line. That through David's line, he would plant that seed of rescue. See, David's seed would rule in perpetual kingship over the Lord's people as verse 14 says, right? I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. David's David's descendants would be the sons of God, the son of God, the kingship that would never be uprooted like Saul's had been, a kingship that would secure shalom, the blessing that God's people had yearned for. And then along comes David's son, the one he named Shalomo. We know him better as Solomon. Do you hear the link there between Shalom and Solomon's name? See, even though offspring, uh, even though Solomon, you, you can hear in David, right? Like, and in all these promises, the longing for the. For shalom, the the peace, the yearning for the good life, that that wholeness, prosperity, for everything to work out the way it should be, the right ordering of all things. That's shalom. That's shalom. That's what we yearn for. And in David naming his son Solomon that, you can see David's own yearnings, right? And even though Solomon himself was the offspring of rape and murder, uh, Solomon's reign initially did seem to be the inbreaking of the shalom that God had promised. Think about it, right? He was a wise king. And he brought widespread, unparalleled peace and prosperity, not, not just to Israel, but the kind of prosperity that drew the nations in and people from the outside were blessed because God's people were blessed. He also built that glorious house that the Lord said he would. Um, a glorious house for God, this, this reminder, this permanent reminder, uh, not just of the Lord's intent to dwell in, With his people, but also of how the Lord had securely planted his people. You could look at that big old temple and be like, no one's moving that thing. God has planted his people, hasn't he? And so in Shalomo's reign, in Solomon's reign, that longing, that yearning that we human beings have seemed to be met. The Lord's shalom, breaking in on earth, right? And then the wheels fell off. Because just like King Saul before him, Solomon just couldn't get out of the pattern of doing what was right in his own eyes, right? And that wasn't just Solomon's issue. It didn't stop with him. The kings, Solomon's sons after him continued in this kind of rebellion against God. Too many of Solomon's sons followed in his footsteps and they ruined Shalom. And they eventually lost themselves the throne, God's house, God's kingdom. Because they couldn't measure up. They didn't measure up. Y'all, imagine what it was like for God's people. For hundreds of years, they were left with this aching, with this yearning, with this longing for shalom, for the restoration of all things, clinging to what seemed to be a forgotten promise, the promise of a king, the promise of a rescuer who would come and make all this right, right? For 400 years, they ached, waiting for the shalom bringer. And in one silent night, 2,000 years ago, in Bethlehem, the, the, the city of old King David, he came. Yeshua, Jesus, whose whose name literally means Yahweh saves. The the promised seed of Eve, of Noah, of Abraham, of David arrived on the scene. And the the kingly son of God. And when he shows up, the heavenly armies show up. These, These beings of light, the warriors come down to earth not to smite the earth, but in their song, right? In, in, uh, in Luke chapter two, verse 14, they sang that the promised king was beginning the true inbreaking of shalom. God's peace on earth. Hmm. All right, so maybe that feels like a bunch of history to you. And maybe you're like... I hope it doesn't. I hope, like, I hope that stirs and moves your heart, right? Uh, but maybe you're like, okay, sounds good, but what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does, how does this impact my life? So here's, here's what I want to do. Uh, because, again, we're, the, the promise was about a coming king. So we're going we're to hang out in that yearning for a little bit. But I also want to show, like, here, here's how it's relevant to us, okay? Um, first... The story that the Lord tells of a king that was promised, of a son that was promised, um, it's a promise he made good on. So here's how I think shalom, the promise of a king, uh, how it brings us shalom in our hearts. Two ways, okay? Brings us peace and settledness. Hey, Christian, first, know that you have what for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people only looked forward to. They clung to a promise of 100% cure, right? And you, for you, that's history. You can look back on that and you can say the Lord did deliver as he promised, right? Whatever the odds. There were huge moments in Israel's history where it seemed like there's no way we're getting the king. There's no way this is getting any better. And in the midst of those overwhelming odds, the Lord still delivered on his promise, right? So here's what I think that does. It proves two things. Um. It proves he's trustworthy, even against overwhelming odds, right? Which I think, honestly, I think that's the core problem that a lot of us human beings have with God. It's just this deep sense, can I trust him? Well, If you can trust him to have delivered on this promise against overwhelming odds, then we can trust him to continue to deliver on his promises. The promises that we're still waiting for, that that one day our king will return and one day there will be uncontested shalom here on earth with the removal of sin entirely, right? Also, I, I just hope, I hope this story true story of what God is doing in his rescue from beings. I hope it brings shalom, peace to your hearts in knowing that God's desire always has been, is, and always will be to dwell with his people. Nothing stopped him before. Nothing is stopping him now. History is moving relentlessly toward that day when we will one day see our God face to face. When he dwells in the midst of his people, the shining light, and everything is as it should be, that's the ache, right? The longing that we feel. One day that is coming. He will not rest until he's given us rest. Okay? All right, so, so the promise of the shalom bringer, promise of a son, of a king, uh, should bring us peace in our hearts that way. But y'all, the shalom bringer just doesn't give you simply a peaceful, easy feeling in your heart. He actually does bring shalom. He actually does bring the restoration of all things, right? See, that right ordering of things, that, that wholeness, that is breaking in now. We saw that in, in, in Solomon's day and it's breaking in now. Look, hey, maybe, maybe you're tempted to be skeptical because you look around and you're like, how is this wholeness? Wait, remember, remember last week's sermon, right? What's the heart of the problem? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? It's that rebellion and alienation from God. And that is what our king came to fix. He came to fix that first, to, to pay the price for our rebellion, right? And, and now he's busy writing wrong hearts because where, hearts, where wrong hearts are made right, you're gonna find less wrong there. Uh, Think of it this way, okay? Um, Think about all the things that we tend to pump at people to try to solve the problem. You can give a wrong heart all the food, education, money, power, security that you want, and in the end, here's what you're gonna have, right? You're gonna have a fed, educated, wealthy, powerful, secure, but wrong heart, who then will use all the things that you've just given it to bring more wrong into the world, right? But you change that heart. You change that heart the way our shalom bringer does, the way our king does. You, you spread that seed and you will see the spring of shalom begin to bud and break out in that heart, in and through that heart, right? Hey, This world is not the way any of us want it, right? And with two point something billion people who at least in name claim Jesus as their Lord, right? There are buds of shalom all around. The question is, where are we looking? Where are we looking? The Lord is... Busy transforming hearts. And it's the transformed hearts. It's as you look at another human being and you say, I see Jesus in you. I see what, what one day we will see everywhere around us things made right. Someone who is made right with God. Not perfectly, but someone who is made right with God. This is again why we do church, right? Look around you, brother and sister. You got the buds of shalom sitting right here. The Lord is working, the Lord is working. All right, but more importantly, our shalom bringer, the promised king, he made us a promise that he is going to deliver on one day, right? The Lord who identifies with his people and seeks to dwell among his people is returning one day to dwell with his people and nothing can stop him. And when he does, that shalom that we see budding and breaking through in in the hearts around us, the shalom that started its in-breaking on his first advent, we will see fully spread through the globe, right? We'll talk more about that shalom next week. Let's pray. Lord, in this season of longing and yearning, um, there, our eyes can easily drift. There are so many things that we tend to look to to provide us comfort and satisfaction. So Father, I pray for my sisters and brothers here. I know that as a church, we're going through a lot. I know that as individuals, there are, there's some real stories in here, Lord. Um, and I pray that in the midst of all that, you would cause us to cling to your promise. To the promise of a king, the king who came, the king who is coming again, who will right all things that are wrong. We thank you that you have restored us to yourself. Jesus, we love you. We seek to magnify you. We pray all this in your name, Lord. Amen.